Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am sitting down today with Eric Weiss. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. It's great to have you, man. We've been talking about this for a long time. And um, I think today it's going to be kind of a diverse conversation. We're going to talk a little bit about Genghis Khan. And then I think we're going to fast forward into the modern day a bit to talk about Bitcoin, digital assets, and uh, maybe a little bit of of your story in orange pilling Mr. Michael Saylor. So with that, I'm going to open by reading an excerpt from the book, which you've read, I've read a little bit of in preparation for this. The okay. book, is, book is titled Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. It's a good and book. <laughs> it is a good book. So I'm just going to open with one description of Mr. Genghis Khan here, and then we can get into a, a little bit of conversation about him. So this is a description of Genghis Khan by the chronicler Giuviani, who described him as, quote, A man of tall stature, of vigorous build, robust in body, the hair on his face scanty and turned white, with cat's eyes, possessed of dedicated energy, discernment, genius, and understanding, awe-striking, a butcher, just, resolute, an overthrower of enemies, intrepid, sanguinary, and cruel, unquote. So well, quite the introduction. I mean, I wasn't there. I wasn't there in the year 1200 or you know, <laughs> whenever that, whenever that might've been, but um, I, I read the same book and uh, I think there are a lot of interesting aspects about Genghis Khan to me. Um, one thing that I find interesting in general is I just didn't get taught about him a lot in school here in America, um, which based on, uh, how influential he was uh, is pretty surprising to me. I think his physical stature and the physical description, um, you know, is, is not something I've ever really thought much about. I, um, but I do think about um, a couple of aspects. Uh, number one, I think uh, the the land that he conquered is just absolutely absurd uh, by today's measures. Uh, I think it would be like about 3 billion of the 8 billion population would have been territory that ultimately fell under his control. So that's just, I mean, it's mind boggling to me, right? Um, And then the other things that kind of stand out to me is how someone could be so ruthless, such a shrewd um, military general, so to speak, and conquer so many different civilizations, but also have such incredibly positive and relevant contributions to society. Um, I mean, in some ways he was actually like maybe one of the first feminists, mm. which is kind of interesting to me. Uh, his, his, I think the, the way that he turned out to be the way he was is uh, they had kidnapped his mother when he was really young. And he went after, um, I forget the name of the sex, maybe it was like the Merkit, I think, um, but who like kidnapped his mom. Right. and conquered them, killed them all, got his mom back. And that kind of started his you know, reign of terror. But along with that, he also 
outlawed the kidnapping of women. He outlawed the selling of women to be wives, which I mean, sounds like, yeah, okay, you know, big deal. But prior to that time, that's not how it was done. So I thought that was kind of, kind of interesting. The other, some other things that he did that like kind of stick with me are he conquered so many different civilizations um, and, and different religious kind of uh, groups that he had this very evolved perspective on religion where uh, he didn't mandate that other people adopted his religion. He kind of respected all religions. Uh, he took it a step further and even kind of um, had tax amnesty for all religions. Hmm. Uh, and he made other people in his empire honor every religion. Um, he, he did lots of very, you know, things in that vein. For example, they didn't have um, diplomatic immunity back in those days. Like hmm. you couldn't just send your warring uh, you know, generals to have a conversation with the opposing side and not kill them. Mm -hmm. But he kind of established that as well. So he did a lot of things like that, um, that I think, you know, were surprising to me. But then I'm sure, you know, as it relates to kind of the topics that we're interested in, maybe the the monetary aspects and the currency and trade aspects are, you know, maybe, maybe most relevant. But. Yeah, I, yeah, it's, I, so first of all, He's Mongolian. Yeah. But it's not uh is there a physical description of him? I mean, I know we just read one, but they're not the Mongolian that we conceive of today, I don't think is what he looked like back then, right? Was it so, sort of like a blend of Asian, Russian, exactly. Indian, something exactly. like that? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I just go from kind of the renderings that I've seen, and that's exactly a kind of a an a, a Russian Asian kind of look. Yeah. I just know that as, as kind as he might be, I wouldn't, I'm glad I, I didn't get to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> and he, I, I've heard that he sired something like 10% of the world's population. Like you could trace the descendancy back to him. Is that accurate? That I don't know, but, but that kind of dovetails nicely into like one of his great strategies, which was after he would conquer a people, um, instead of enslaving them and, and causing this future conflict and future strife and, you know, kind of animosity, he went the other way and he would marry um, his sons or daughters into the families that he conquered wow. and kind of like integrate them that way, which is just like so forward looking. The other thing, it kind of reminds me of something else that, that was a huge departure that he did from previous rulers Previously, people promoted and, and gave power based on um, nepotism, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to put my son in charge of this army. I'm going to put my you know, son in charge of this. And he didn't do that at all. As a matter of fact, he did not empower his family all that much. He did it uh, based exclusively on merit mm -hmm. and loyalty. So that was a big departure as well. And I think a lot of, uh, you know, why he was so successful. Yeah, it's, you know, the the title really frames it up nicely is that although he's often considered kind of this ruthless tyrant, uh, ancient ruthless tyrant, he really, many of the practices he put in place are still foundational to the modern world today, right? Like you mentioned Absolutely. Am amnesty. Um, I'll read and to the point of religious tolerance, I'll read another excerpt mm -hmm. here that I thought was really interesting. 
And this, <laughs> there's a bit of a backstory here, but he was fleeing from one of his enemies. They had basically reached the muddy waters of this pond. They're, they have nothing to drink. They have nothing to eat. And then yeah. out of the woods comes this wild horse. And then apparently, so one of his riders chases down the horse, catches it, kills it, skins it. They don't have anything to cook with. So they, they actually use the horse's skin as a, like a boiling bag. They put the horse meat in the skin. They right. start a fire with dried dung. They heat stones and then they drop the, the heated stones into the water and horse meat in the horse's skin bag. And they eat boiled Damn. horse meat. So it's like totally badass stuff. Yeah. And then after that, because the horse was such a symbolic of such symbolic significance to, to uh, the Mongols, they took this as a sign. It was like, it was a time where they were kind of on the ropes, but this horse came along and saved them. So mm -hmm. they had this, <laughs> that backstory leads into this uh, little excerpt here. It says, quote, the event acquired a symbolic representation of the diversity of the Mongol people based on mutual commitment and loyalty that transcended kinship, ethnicity, and religion. The 19 men with Timujin Khan came from nine different tribes. Probably only Timujin and his brother Kassar were actually from the Mongol clans. The others included Merkid, Kitan, and Karyid, whereas Timujin was a devout shamanist who worshipped the eternal blue sky and the god mountain of Burkhan Khaldun. The 19 included several Christians, three Muslims, and several Buddhists. They were united only in their devotion to Timujin and their oath to him and each other. The oath sworn at Baljuna, which was the little pond they were at, created a type of brotherhood, and in transcending kinship, ethnicity, and religion, it came close to being a type of modern civic citizenship based upon personal choice and commitment. This connection became a metaphor for the new type of community among Timujin's followers that would eventually dominate as the basis of unity within the Mongol Empire. So to your earlier point, this guy was like way ahead of his time, you know, where way ahead. In the, right? I mean, historically, it was like you stuck with your tribe, so to speak, or your religion. And he has yeah. uh, a, you know, a unity based on choice, which is something we take for granted here in the modern age choice choice and not so much choice <laughs> but like, <laughs> I, I mean i don't if you don't choose to be a part of it you're probably gonna end up dead but uh yeah i mean he aggregated a lot of cultures right races religions etc and in doing so he didn't try to timogen obviously you know for those who don't know timogen is Genghis khan's like real name right so that um so he, when you're aggregating all these cultures, it occurred to him, which is pretty impressive, that you need to make room for everybody. If you try to force everybody into, you know, uh, the likeness that you want, you're going to have some pretty upset people and you're going to have constant warring. So he did kind of have this absolute religious freedom. And he did institute kind of laws, you know, as you said earlier, that are still so relevant today, like stealing used to be fairly legal. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how people got stuff. And not only did he outlaw stealing, but he implemented like this lost and found law, where mm -hmm. if you found something that wasn't yours, you were obligated to return it to whomever it belonged to. So he had like kind of this 
really interesting um, evolved view, like you said, on bringing people together. And he put his money where his mouth is. He also, um, he, he exempted religion from taxes as well, mm-hmm. which is pretty, pretty, pretty amazing foresight. I think he did it for doctors too, but religion in particular. Um, and I guess the, I guess the, the view was if you're going to rule people, you, it's better to rule happy people. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. To your point, unity based on personal choice, but under the canopy of no choice. It's like his tyranny. There's no alternative to that, but within that you have choice of kind of, I mean, contrast that with the Incas, right. Who are like, they conquered you and they gave you a choice. You could die or you could be a slave for, I think it was six years. And if you survived the six years, you got your freedom. It's a pretty shitty choice, right? Versus, you know, Genghis Khan's choice, which is, hey, live under a rule-based free society with me and, you know, just follow what they thought were were good, fair laws at the time. Yeah. And you can have a good life. So not not such a bad conqueror. Not not the image that we have that gets portrayed of him, right? Yes, right. And the other point there was, the people that he conquered, so long as they didn't have a history of treachery of any kind, that he actually accepted them. They were just immediately citizens within his um, group there. And so on the topic of conquering, got another <laughs> excerpt yeah. here. Okay. One way one way to maybe think of him was as the ultimate entrepreneur of warfare. I mean, he was fighting a lot of his life. And he was very uh, sophisticated in both his strategies and the technologies he used. So yeah, I'll, I'll read this here. Quote, the Mongol invaders rolled up their newly constructed siege engines, catapults, trebuchets, and mangonels that hurled not only stones and fire as besieging armies had done for centuries, but also pots of burning liquids, exploding devices, and incendiary materials. They maneuvered immense crossbows mounted on wheels and great teams of men pushed in portable towers with retractable ladders from which they could shoot down the defenders of the walls. At the same time that they attacked through the air, miners went to work digging into the earth (laughs) to undermine the walls by sapping. During the awesome display of technological prowess in the air, on the land and beneath the earth, Genghis Khan heightened the psychological tension by forcing prisoners, in some cases the captured comrades of the men still in the citadel, to rush forward until their bodies filled up the moat and made live ramparts over which other prisoners pushed the engines of war. I mean, this guy was... He was was a no-bullshit kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like you said, I mean... uh... I guess that would be a, a nice way to to categorize it as a great entrepreneur of war. But I mean, he fought to win, right? And he was yeah. resourceful and he thought outside the box mm-hmm. and um, uh, he was very creative, um, both technologically as well as the strategies of how they would attack and uh, create the illusions that they were bigger than they were. They didn't always have like the biggest armies. And yeah. uh, I haven't read the book, you know, all that recently, but I remember, um, he had his men 
um, light like 10 campfires for every person, yep. you know, one night so that it would appear that, that their army was much larger than it was. And uh, just the man was good at warfare. Obviously, you don't conquer uh, half the planet if you're not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's another tell of him. I'll be kind of messing up the details here, but they were rushing towards an enemy that thought he was, you know, 2000 miles away, but he had people set up fresh horses for him in succession yeah, going towards that. the enemy. I remember that. So he could just ride straight through for like two days or, or however long it was. And just every time a horse got tired, he'd swap it out for another one. Isn't that, it's amazing. Yeah. I remember that excerpt too. Yeah. I mean, the, just stuff like that, thinking outside the box, so forward looking, um, really interesting. I mean, uh, for anybody that hasn't read the book, I think it's, it's not a boring read, right? It's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. It's so well-written and, um, yeah. just gives you, you know, like we, we come from this, you know, we had to fight and figure things out to get to the civilization we're at today. So it's almost like you're looking, yeah. it's almost like an archeological dig into culture and civilization. Like, how did we get here? And there's a bit of a paradox, right? And that this guy had great power, but he was also using that power to create something that would ultimately decentralize power, these cultural norms and, and things. Yeah. So. And I think actually it occurs to me, as you say it, that it's in the root of the word of civilization. He really did bring a lot of civility that mm-hmm. wasn't there. So yes, there was the brutal warring and conquering and, and taking over the land, but there was also civility. There was law, there was, you can't steal, mm-hmm. Um, you can't do all these things that we take for granted now that seem kind of like common sense. And then he also brought it right into the financial sector, right? Mm-hmm. And as he as he had conquered this vast area where barter obviously has its um, shortcomings, you know, you can't swap a sable uh, coat for a thing of grain, right? Like right. it would take a lot of grain. So they needed commerce. They needed, and he instituted, you know, gold coins and silver coins. And then later, I believe, instituted the first uh, paper money and banknotes. Um, I don't know how to pronounce it. It was spelled like soups or something. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I, I, I don't have a sailor-esque knowledge of the entire world at that time. But I, I think that uh, he gets credit in some of the things that I read for the first paper banknotes. Yeah. It's really interesting that it's almost like we have to go through this process to get to where we are today. It's not like you can just turn on civility. You know, there, there, there has to be this laying of the bedrock. Um, and, and maybe one way to think about this is a strong man has to come to power so that he can lay down rules Mm-hmm. under which everyone else can kind of trade and develop civility because absent that you just have, you know, like, like you said, people just stealing from each other or, you know, stealing wives. That was a big practice. Yeah. As you said before he laid down these rules. So, but if you, it's interesting, cause it's, if you take what you said and you apply it to Genghis Khan, you can see how the laws that he made were influenced by the specific things that he viewed as negative that occurred in his life. His reign of conquering started because his mom was kidnapped from him when he was young. And so you can see how that influenced the laws where he said, hey, no kidnapping of women. He had tremendous respect for women. Um, 
you know, later in his life, and he made it illegal to even sell women as a wife. Um, when there was all kinds of problems later in his life as he got older, the only person that seemed to be able to get through to him was his wife. I think her name was Bort. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, so he, he had tremendous respect for women because of the things that happened in his life. And you could see the way that translated into civil laws that he implemented. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all of this in my mind, like, it seems like it's a prerequisite to, again, things we take for granted today, like the rule of law, like private property rights, like the fact that we have this, you know, we have in the U S at least we have this nation state above us that sets the rules yep. and we all get to cooperate within the rules itself. And then in theory, the rules don't change over time. So we can, there's peace, frankly. Right. Um, Except for the last 24 months, they seem to be changing a lot. It's deteriorating <laughs> quickly. And, it, you know, as we've yeah. talked about a lot, you know, monetary inflation is a twisting of the rules. But um, yep. I'll, I'll read one more excerpt here that, you know, Khan was very, it seems like he deeply understood this, this principle. It says, quote, Genghis Khan recognized that warfare was not a sporting contest or a mere match between rivals. It was a total commitment of one people against another. Victory did not come to the one who played by the rules. It came to the one who made the rules and imposed them on his enemy. Triumph could not be partial. It was complete, total, and undeniable, or it was nothing. Unquote. So Whoa, that is some incredibly strong language, huh? Right. <laughs> and it seems like something we carry into today like even the like the united states sort of behaves on that same paradigm right it's like we're gonna go around the world and the, make the rules the maxis certainly do um <laughs> but yeah i mean i never I, I didn't remember that exact passage but that's the feeling that you come away with after reading about him you know you you could you could soften it by saying you know he kind of played to win but it was at all cost. It was every bit of, he was ready to die every time he went into battle. And in the books, they spent a decent amount of time uh, when he had the opportunity, him contemplating when to go to battle and when mm. not. And kind of some of those Sun Tzu kind of things about, um, you know, you know, if evenly matched or whatever, although he, he seemed to not shy away from a fight, but he picked his spots and used a lot of strategy. But you just get the feeling and maybe it's, you know, uh, some of the liberties of the authors and the authors were fans of him and were kind of subject to some of that interpretation, but he, it was not skin in the game. It was soul in the game. And mm. he was prepared to, to lay down his life for every single victory. Yeah. Which is something that we've <laughs> diverged from so far in the modern age, right? Like our leaders today, they don't lead from the front. They don't have no. soul in the game, not even skin in the game. They're just, no, making decisions. They don't stand for anything except polling. They, they they make decisions based on what polling says will get them reelected and stay in power. Yes, exactly. And I think this this conversation about rules and rulemaking, rulemaking kind of being the ultimate source of power, which is intuitive, right? If you if you can make the rules in a game, that's effectively the power to win in perpetuity. And so I think yeah. this is good framing for the importance of Bitcoin, actually, as, as I've often described it, it's the first you know, game of money that no one can change the rules. 
So yep. instead of people fighting over controlling the rulemaking apparatus, it's like everyone just falls in line and plays by the rules effectively, which in theory will lead us to a much more productive, prosperous society. I, I agree. I mean, I guess in the past, we've, we've had the rules. The rules haven't been the problem. It's that there are rulers who can change the rules, mm -hmm. right? So I think, uh, you know, with Bitcoin, uh, we've got the rules. We just don't have the rulers. And yeah. I think that's the strength of the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. There, I'm reminded of a quote, sovereign is he who can make the exception. You know, it's like whatever guy owns. That's a great rule, quote. The rule making or the rule breaking, I guess you could say, if they have the option to break the rules and they're, they're one and the same, I guess. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of, I mean, and it's particularly disgusting if you think about uh, our current politicians in this country and just how many examples we've seen of rules for thee, but not for me, mm -hmm. you know, over the recent past where you must wear a mask, right? And then right. it'll be XYZ politician doing whatever, you know, having lunch at, uh, you know, French laundry or something after you tell people you can't do it if you're the governor of California or something. Mm -hmm. and just all these ridiculous exceptions of, of those rule breakers. They make the rules and then they give themselves the divine right to break the rules. Yes. Same thing was, it was there with Obamacare too, right? The only people in the country who weren't subject to Obamacare, Obamacare were members of Congress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it's so good for everyone, why can't it be for you too? You know? Yeah. Like, and yeah, it's so asinine really. And the same is true with the, I, I think there are exceptions to these different mandates they're talking about passing too, right? Where Congress and their staff are not subject to different, I don't know if it's vaccine related or not, but they're seemingly never subject to any of the rules they make. And even if they're legally subject, they seem to just skirt them. Right. And there's no end to that. Right. Even if it's like Fed governors and Fed presidents transacting when they should, you know, mm -hmm. it's like they just there's this sense that they're above that they're above the law. I mean, because they are in many ways. Power, power corrupts. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then I'm reminded, too, of the revolving door situation where a lot of the politicians will go and actually draft legislation that they then rotate out into industry after as a consultant to exploit the loopholes in the legislation that they yeah. themselves drafted. And, you know, it's the problem, it's unbelievable. It, yeah. The problem is that we're not, everyone is not under the same canopy of law. And that's at least, I know we're early days here, but I think that's a great promise of Bitcoin is to just put everyone under one unbreakable law of money, at least. Um, I completely agree. I think that, one of the things that uh, I like best about Bitcoin, although there are like tons of aspects that I love, but one of, one of my favorite as it's applied to kind of modern day situation is that I think that Bitcoin has a chance to be a great unifier among a very divided um, political uh, you know, situation here in the United States. Mm -hmm. It truly appeals to the left and the Democrats in, in that it is maybe the only thing that can bridge this wealth gap and protect the wages of wage earners so that they can maintain their purchasing power. And that divide doesn't just benefit the asset owning class who's the assets they own inflate in value and that wealth gap divides. Mm -hmm. So I think they should embrace it. And then I also think 
the kind of more um, capitalist free market right side obviously will also embrace it. So I think I think it has the chance to really get bipartisan support and potentially bring people in this country together. I agree completely. And I harbor this hope, actually, that at some point, and you see this a little bit with like Senator Loomis. I don't know if you've seen these videos of her recently, but she, you know, she's indicting policymakers saying you have destroyed in many ways destroyed this country through irresponsible policy and monetary yeah. policy largely. And I hold out this hope that we'll wake up and realize that really Bitcoin embodies the foundational principles of America, right? It is absolutely honest money, rule of law. It's the ultimate private property, right? I mean, that's what this country was built on. The reason we're wealthy and successful and dominant is because we adhered to those principles originally. I, I couldn't agree with every word that you just said more. It is, it is, I have that exact thought often. It, 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 Bitcoin stands for everything that this country was founded upon. And other than one trying to stake out their territory, look out for their own personal interests, or um, you know, uh, bend to the will of someone who has influence upon them, you can't imagine why anyone who loves any aspect of this country would not love Bitcoin. And that's why I think it really could be a great uniter for all of us, because there's not a lot there to object to. Like, right. find me find me what's unfair about it. There's right. just, there's, it's truly fair. And, and to your point, I mean, in addition to being fair and, and good monetarily, it's also consistent with what's made this country great, um, technological advance and being leaders in that and freedom. You know, and I must say that I'm surprised, but also encouraged at the direction the regulatory environment is going. I have tremendous respect for Gary Gensler. I'm sure that, you know, a lot of uh, hardcore uh, crypto and maxi people uh, don't want any regulation of any kind, but I, I also don't think that's pragmatic. Mm -hmm. And I think he's extraordinarily knowledgeable. Um, if anyone, uh, really is interested in this space, they should watch uh, the course that he taught for MIT. There's 26 hours of it online. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone that knows more about this stuff than he does. I mean, he certainly knows more than I do. I was blown away by the course. So the fact that he has such reverence for, you know, Satoshi and Bitcoin, I think it's just an amazing stroke of luck for us that he happens to be the regulator uh, with the most influence right now uh, in regulating Bitcoin. So, I mean, that's great. I think the administration as a whole is being fairly pragmatic and looking for ways to regulate things, which, sorry, but I think we have to expect some some fair regulation. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, think, I think we're in good shape and that's a democratic uh, administration. And then if you look at the Senate, um, and the and senators and Congress people on the right side, like Senator Lummis and others, who are also in favor of it. I mean, even just look at those Republican senators and look at Jack Dorsey, right? Mm -hmm. I think most people, after he kicked Trump off the platform, right, probably view Jack as way more left than right. And there you have it, right? That's both sides of the aisle coming together for this awesome thing called Bitcoin that levels the playing field for everybody. Yeah, I mean it. Completely makes sense, especially when you consider how much more politically divisive the country has become post-1971, right? It's like when we move off of a hard money standard, it, I, you know, and there's 
a lot of discussion around the precise mechanisms of this, but it tracks nicely is that the, the polarity, political polarity has become much worse in the past 50 years. And so it would make sense yeah. that something like Bitcoin could, you know, uh, take it the other direction, right? Back to a hard money standard. So um, I agree. I think there's probably a lot of reasons for that, for this political divide. I think people are searching for identity. Mm -hmm. um, and social media has played a big role in that as well, allowing people to kind of group. I also think, you know, with um, as science evolves, people seem to be um, less tied to their religious beliefs and they're looking for social groups to belong to that have a belief system that's more in line with theirs. And I think that's helped uh, polarize the political landscape as well. But uh, it would be great if we found something like Bitcoin or some other things that people could actually get together on and, and agree. And um, that might even bring some more civility to other topics. Once you have one area of agreement, maybe you can tackle some other things where maybe you have more overlap of, you know, positive overlap than people think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've been thinking a lot about this, like what's going on in the world? What's with all the cultural degradation and such? And I mean, my current view, and I've been criticized for this view, but I actually think economics is upstream from most of this. So like we know that fiat currency is increasing the wealth disparity. Like that's mechanically understood. And then I yes. think a lot of the political divisiveness flows from that, right? You just have more people dispossessed in the wealth hierarchy. So they're mad. They want to go and, you know, vote themselves UBI or whatever, whatever benefit it yep. is. And then you have at the exactly. other end of the spectrum, you have people trying to protect their interests, protect their wealth from being redistributed from. So I, I just don't think we could ever have any semblance of political unity without hard money. I haven't given that a lot of thought, but you know, they're definitely connected, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's exactly what you said. It's if you rob Peter to pay Paul, you're always going to have Paul's support. Exactly. And regardless of who's in power, their intent on taking from those that have only because there are more that have not. If there were more that had, it would not be the case, mm -hmm. but they need to curry the favor of the majority. So they're going to take from the minority to give to the majority just to get their vote, just to stay in power, just to keep this mm -hmm. thing going. Yeah. And I, it's a hard know, cycle to break. Yeah. Again, without Bitcoin, I don't even know that it's possible, right? Because so long yeah. as taking is an option, whatever group is the most angry is going to try to get in that position of taking. Um, yeah, it goes back to kind of Sailor's, uh, you know, phrase that he coined a little bit, Bitcoin is hope. And it's it's just amazing in how many different situations that phrase holds true. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The, I guess the greatest thing we could hope for coming out of the U.S. regulatory establishment is just kind of that do not harm approach that they took with the internet, which is to just let the free market decide, let the free market figure it out. Um, I'm not, you know, clearly there'll be regulations on exchanges and whatnot, but as far as trying to stop Bitcoin or, all, you know, executive order 6102 Bitcoin, things like this, I just think all of yeah. those measures would blow up in the regulator's face. I actually think that a degree of regulation is incredibly good and helpful mm -hmm. uh, for Bitcoin. 
I know that a lot of folks want this to be a hardcore libertarian kind of uh, thing with no oversight. But I think in order for Bitcoin to achieve its potential, we do need some institutional adoption. Mm -hmm. And institutional adoption is not going to come without things like basic anti-money laundering, know your client, anti-terrorism kind of checks, right? Um, it's part of that civilization thing that we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. right? We, we do need to apply some civility even to money. Um, and so I think that those things are good things. You know, corporations, obviously MicroStrategy, a little bit of a, a gutsy leader in that space, but other corporations will have so much more confidence and ability to put their money in it to protect themselves from inflation if there are, um, you know, some rules and regulations that protect investors, protect them, protect their shareholders, give them fair tax accounting, et cetera. Mm. Where do you think we are today on that front? Like what, what is lacking for more institutional adoption to take place? Is there a certain area of regulation that's, that's especially weak in your view? The single biggest thing stopping um, more large corporations from putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet is the accounting aspect. Mm. It's incredibly punitive. That is by far the biggest thing. In, in lay terms, I'm not a CPA, but in lay terms, what it, what it is, is if a publicly traded company that's subject to gap accounting buys Bitcoin, if the value of that Bitcoin goes down, they have to mark it down to the lowest price, even if it comes back up. So it could go down 50% and then go up 500%. They have to keep it on their books at that lower price. What's even more vicious about that is they don't take like a balance sheet asset loss. They have to take an operating loss. So their earnings mm. will be impaired. Now, if you're going the micro strategy route and you're willing to make it such a massive part of the asset value of the company that mm -hmm. every prospective investor is kind of forced to parse through it, look at the number of Bitcoin, multiply by the current price, and kind of determine a value and, and sift through it, great. If you're Apple and you have 60, 80 billion in cash, whatever it is, and you decide you want to buy 5 billion worth of Bitcoin, which doesn't really move the needle for you as a company, but then we have a 50% downdraft and you've got to mark that down by two and a half billion and you miss earnings by 10 cents mm. because your Bitcoin went down by two and a half billion, their attitude is fuck that. Like mm -hmm. it's not worth it. People are not going to parse Apple's balance sheet and earnings to find this little $5 billion thing, right? So it's not worth it for those big companies. If we get fair treatment in accounting, which was all what all that FASB and all those comments things were about that people were talking about on Twitter, if we get um, you know, federal accounting board to kind of say, hey, let's treat it this way like we treat other, you know, similar assets, then I think we're going to see mass adoption at a corporate level. Is that so it's marked to market down only? They don't market really. So the lowest it's ever been is what you carry it at. And it hits you as an operating loss as well. Like your business lost money. I know so it's, it's, that makes no sense. Wow. <laughs> it's only now the caveat is it's only for those subject to gap accounting, right? right? Which is not everyone, but certainly every publicly traded company in the United States is, but yeah, it, it, it literally makes no sense. It's just unfair. And that is that treatment is unique to Bitcoin and crypto. It is. I mean, that seems just purposefully 
punitive or I mean that that makes no sense. Even Why? worse, even worse than punitive, maybe from FASB's perspective, is it's misleading, right? Mm-hmm. You should you should be wanting to get to the truth and an accurate depiction of value. Yeah. And I forget what other assets it may pertain to, that type of accounting, but say it's like I think it might pertain to other kinds of property. I'm not sure. I may, I may be misspeaking here, but you may not know what the price of a building is 24 seven because it doesn't trade 24 seven, 365. Right. But we know what the price of Bitcoin is. Yes. You can mark this to market accurately yeah. and to represent it not marked to market accurately is doing all investors a disservice. Right. The mark to market is as of a financial statement close, right? It's not inter intra period, whatever Bitcoin draws down to. They're having to mark that. Do you know? That I don't. As the current, I was just thinking. Like, that I mean, I don't know. I was thinking like uh, in March 2020 when we had that really sharp drawdown to whatever it was, 3,800 bucks. In that yeah. case, would all of these FASB compliant businesses be required to mark down their stash? To- yes. Wow, that makes no fucking sense. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So, Whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Tell me about how you got introduced to Bitcoin. Sure. So... I started out, I'll I'll give three seconds of context. I started out as a US government bond trader out of uh, undergrad. Then I went to Columbia Business School and then I got into uh, venture capital and private equity. And I was doing primarily internet VC where we were investing in companies that were using the internet uh, as a real tool um, for their business, not slapping a .com at the end of the name. And um, it was in that context that I kind of realized what the internet was good for. And at the time it was really good for transmitting information around the world. Um, You know, think email, posting pictures, stuff like that. It was not good for transmitting value. And so in 2013, I went to a Bitcoin conference in Miami. And what struck me was this was the first time that I had seen the internet being used for transmitting value safely and securely, where party A didn't need to know party B, and it was a trustless environment. And my mind was kind of blown. Mm. I I was positive that this was going to be something. And I spent, um, pardon me, I spent like 
the next, God, I don't remember how long it was, but a couple months, um, thinking through every way that I might play this, so to speak, right? Um, should I start a business in this space? I've got the execution risk of starting a business. And what kind of business could I even start? I could do a directory of companies that, you know, accept Bitcoin or something. And so that's kind of where my head was at. And I, I came to the conclusion that if this was going to be a thing, that there was no point taking the execution risk that the value of the liquid asset, the Bitcoin, would go up in value. And so in December of 2013, actually, as, as depicted on the, the full node sculpture, December 20th, 2013, um, I bought my first Bitcoin uh, at like 780 bucks per Bitcoin. Um, and I bought a decent amount. Uh, but it was a different world back then. Mm -hmm. And this was a really high risk, not even a venture capital investment. It was kind of more like a passion buy kind of thing. Like, mm -hmm. because I wanted this to be something, you know, mm -hmm. like it was almost out of like support and hope. Um, and then the price shot up, it came crashing down. And then when it shot up again, I made the mistake of selling mm -hmm. and, uh, since that time, I have been uh, trying to accumulate as many Bitcoin as I sold. <laughs> and, I, and, and I have been stacking hard uh, since 2016, and I'm, and I'm still not there. So um, yeah, I was talking to Charlie Shroom about this, and you know, he had the same experience. It's like, yeah. and that is, that, that is what teaches you to never sell your Bitcoin when you sell it and you realize you're never going to get it back. 100%. I've heard this a version of the story from several people, actually, that have been around Bitcoin for a while. I myself am in a similar boat. Uh, bought in 14, sold in 14 on that run up. I think it was 14, yeah. maybe it was 15. Uh, no, 14 was the peak. So it was like late 13 or maybe it was sold in 13. Anyways, I still am not back to that number. And so now it's like, it, it's kind of this target in your mind. You're just trying to like reacquire yeah. where you were, where you would have been had you just held. Isn't that interesting? I mean, mine is such a ridiculous arbitrary number. It just happens to be the number of Bitcoin. And that is this mental target that yeah. I have. And uh, there's very little chance that I get to that target. Very little chance. So don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, we all feel like we don't have enough. Yeah. But, you know, um, I'm sure that by like, you know, normal terms, you know, we have a lot on a relative basis. But uh, especially if you start doing math by 8 billion people, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it just, it stings a little bit. Yeah, it stings. And I mean, I guess it's a little bit helpful to start thinking in terms of sats instead. Like that just at least it sounds better from a unit bias standpoint. <laughs> yeah, it does. It, it allows us to compete with some of these colossal shit coins where it's like you can fat finger the number of zeros by like one and you've like, you know, 10x the whole thing. It's just, yeah. it's so silly. Yeah. It's so silly. Now how but I don't think about it in that term. I don't, I don't, I don't get hung up on the, on the sats bits, you know, that game. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Whatever people want to do is however they want to call it is fine with me. Yeah. I've just found like I'm some of my contractors and stuff I pay in Bitcoin. And so now it's like thinking in 
you know, you're just trans translating to sats and dollars a lot. So because they, because they demand to be paid in Bitcoin. I try to work. I try to work with, I try to work with Bitcoiners actually. I found it just to be better overall. You know, they, they get it, they're aligned with it. You know, they uh, seem to work with more purpose and passion. So um, versus people that don't get it, they're just not, they're just not going to give you that same level of commitment, I suppose. I know it's always like a brutal double-edged sword for me when someone is like savvy enough to insist on getting Bitcoin for whatever Mm. it is they're providing. And then I have to respect it, but I also hate parting with any (laughs) amount of Bitcoin, you know, like the, the artist that made the, the full node sculpture. I I bought one of his, uh, he did these public and private keys. I bought one of the Mm -hmm. public keys the other day. And even after knowing him for as long as I have, and like, I still said to him, and I think he even like, did an anonymous tweet about it, but it was me where he said, you know, like that one of his friends asked if they could pay for the key in dollars. And I was like, dude, I will give you more dollars than you're asking for. Just like, let me give you dollars. I'm going to see you Sunday anyway. And he's like, are you fucking kidding me? No. Like, he's like, don't, don't you know me? <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'll give you Bitcoin, man. I just Perfect. make sure to always keep, because I'm still buying Bitcoin basically every day. So I just make sure to always yeah. keep my inflows well above my outflows. Yeah. And so that, that works for me. Um, so you mentioned Bitcoin conference in 2013 that got you started. What, what turned you onto the Bitcoin conference itself originally? You know, as a as a tech VC guy, it was just go to different industry related conferences, mm-hmm. see what the new things are, see where the opportunities are. And most of the conferences are kind of like, I don't know, you walk around, you you see what people are doing, and maybe you find something interesting, maybe you don't. Um, if it's a segment that you're interested in, you go to that conference and then you're really interested in hearing what all the different businesses do, what segments of that industry they're in. Um, focus on the segments that you think are the most interesting, that kind of thing. And sometimes it's just, hey, let's go see what this is about. And, and for the Bitcoin conference in Miami, it was just go see what this is about. Awesome, and it man. was like, you know, people walking around at that time with like, it seemed like everybody's t-shirt said that they would help you set up their wallet, your wallet. And uh, nothing was user-friendly. Like yeah. nothing was user-friendly. It was very intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. Still, I, I think it still is. Yeah, this is pre, I mean, Coinbase launched in what, 14 maybe? No, no, I I, bought, I purchased on Coinbase. So it was on Coinbase. December okay. 13, yeah. 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 Um, that must have been surreal for you then this past year at Bitcoin 2021 and that you <laughs> saw it come almost full circle, right? From this little infantile industry to, you know, sailors headlining the event and I don't know, yeah. 14,000 people at the conference, I think. The developments that have taken place in the last 12 months, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm not that much of a visionary, but they they really have surpassed uh, what I thought I would see in this kind of time frame. Mm. Um, I didn't think I'd see public institutions putting it on their balance sheet. I definitely didn't think I'd see a country declare it legal tender. Mm-hmm. Pardon me, I didn't. I didn't think I would see banks kind of being forced to capitulate and adopt Mm -hmm. it the way they have. Uh, I didn't think the U.S. regulatory landscape would be so incredibly constructive. I didn't think we would get it out of China 
and turn that into such a positive so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like any other technology that the world has decided they want. You know, once once people have decided they want something, man, it's really hard to keep it from them. You know, if you think about the taxis lighting cars on fire and stuff with Uber, you know, when they didn't want Uber, but, and it was in real cities, you know, London, Paris, but the people of the world decided they wanted Uber. And Bitcoin is way more powerful than that. I mean, Uber raised tens, you know, more than $10 billion that they spent on marketing and fighting these fights. Bitcoin's never spent a penny, you know, or a sat, right. right? I mean, it's it. this is just something that's truly captured the hearts and minds and passion of, it's not hyperbole to say the entire world. So... Yeah, it's truly staggering. The it's, it just seems unique to the extent that human nature is like a core component of Bitcoin. You know, like it's it's because it's money and it's a social construct. It's it creates this its own religion almost, right? We talk about the maximalists yeah. and all these things. Like there's people that are just zealous about Bitcoin. Yeah. Um. But it it. I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a, I've tried to describe it as a humanitarian movement because you can't just call it a tech. The tech doesn't capture everything that it is. You know, there's all of this, these questions coming off of it and people reevaluating their worldviews. It's tremendous, frankly. It's tremendous. The most amazing thing to me and sailor and I talk about this quite a bit is it just seems like at every single turn with Bitcoin, there doesn't need to be an aggrieved party. You know, there's mm-hmm. never an aggrieved party as an institution, an individual, mm-hmm. a country adopts Bitcoin. Nobody suffers. It's just mm-hmm. amazing to me, right? Um, and it, it, there's no zero sum game here, right? Like right. nobody's losing for Bitcoin to win. And to me, that's been the most exciting aspect is that nobody has to lose for Bitcoin to win. Yeah, that's maybe a good way to look at it is it's just the ultimate positive sum game, right? And, and it's really every human is incentivized to not only buy it, but then once you've bought it, to evangelize it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which I know smacks of like MLM and, you know, confidence game, MLM kind of aspects, but it all depends what lens you, you look through things. I mean, if you wanted to be critical, you could pull back and look at pretty much any institution on the planet that way. Yeah, well, to the point about money, it does exhibit, uh, it's a network, right? So if you're first to figure out that gold is going to monetize and you buy all the damn gold, well, then you're going to be richer than the people that buy it later. That's the, yeah. it's an unavoidable economic reality of money. Um, yeah, but you're, you're right, though. It's hard to disentangle that from all of the real MLM scams and yeah. uh, pyramid schemes and all these things that are that are in the world today. So, so you Bitcoin 2013, you hear about it. You're thinking about starting a business, trying to figure out, you know, what the right approach is, I guess. Where do you go from there? I bought a bunch of Bitcoin. Um, which I, you know, as we said, I sold too early. And then in 2016 kind of timeframe, I had stayed 
in and around the space and, and crypto in general. In 2016, as things were kind of heating up again, um, all of my friends uh, started to get interested in space and they start calling and asking, what's going on? What are you doing? And I had like a handful of friends um, who were really interested in learning. And I said, okay, uh, I'm investing in all kinds of different things in the space, not just Bitcoin. And um, I'm on all these crazy exchanges all over the world and you know, countries you can't pronounce, buying ICOs that may or may not have any value, et cetera. And I said, look, everybody can give me a couple bucks. I'll send out an email every week and I'll tell you what we did, why we did it, where we're doing it. And we'll all kind of go up the learning curve together and maybe we'll make some money, maybe we won't. Um, and so I did that for about six months. It was a rising tide, you know, you just kind of couldn't miss. And so uh, the returns were ridiculous. And most importantly for me, I was just enjoying what I was doing. And I liked the space. I liked, you know, Bitcoin, the tokens, the coins, the value propositions. This was like massive technology venture capital consolidated into one little universe that I could get my head around. So I decided I was going to start a crypto hedge fund. Um, and putting on my VC hat, I decided to check the landscape, you know, competitive landscape. And to my surprise, I found that there were about 400 VC funds in the crypto space at that time, which was like mind blowing to me. And, you know, got to be intellectually honest if you're going to be an investor. So I was like, all right, let me check a couple of these guys out and see what kind of edge they have. And if I feel like I have any edge and I came to the conclusion that not only did I not have any edge over some of these funds, but I would happily pay them their fees to invest in their fund and have mm. their edge. There's all kinds of like asymmetric access to information, mm -hmm. self-fulfilling prophecy from some of these funds where if they invest in a project, it's going to be successful because they've got these investors in the project. And so I went to go give, uh, you know, one of the funds that I picked out some money and they said, yeah, we'd love to have you in. It's a $2 million minimum. And I was like, oh, huh. that, that's not happening. So I went to another fund that I was impressed with and they had a different uh, strategy. And I went to go give them money and they also had a ridiculously high minimum. And that happened you know, about three times with the three funds that I was interested in investing in. And uh, I looked for uh, what's called a hedge fund of funds, which is... Um, which I'd known about because I'd invested in hedge fund of funds and traditional hedge fund of funds mm -hmm. space where you can invest a smaller amount than the minimums of these funds and you get a portfolio of the hedge funds, uh, you know, run by this manager. And so I couldn't find one. And I went to a, a buddy of mine from the VC world, a guy named Fred Wilson, who uh, runs a firm in New York called Union Square Ventures. Mm -hmm. And he was extremely active in this space. He was the first money in Coinbase and had seeded a number of these VC funds and you know, even owned part of the general partnership in some of them. And we were kind of friendly. And I went to Fred and said, hey, this is my idea. What do you think uh, about starting a fund of funds? And like before I could even finish, he said, I think it's an awesome idea. You should do it. And his exact words were, run, don't walk. Hmm. And so... That day, I started the very challenging uh, thing of forming a crypto-related fund in the United States, <laughs> which was not easy at the time. Try, try getting a, a checking account <laughs> was not easy. Yeah. Um, but anyway, and then I launched um, uh, my fund in February 2018, which is called uh, Blockchain Investment Group. And that fund allocates capital to various crypto hedge funds.
Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Um, the fund of funds that's taken off too, right? Because there's been, I know there was an explosion of funds originally post 2017. Yeah. And then I guess fund of funds started to blow up as well. I don't think so. They're all, they're only a handful of us. Mm. Um, fortunately we have the longest track record and the best track record. Mm. Um, even though we launched at a pretty inauspicious time in February, 2018, at one point we were down 60%, six zero. We didn't have wow. a single investor leave. And now my investors are up about a thousand percent, 10 X net of fees from their initial investment. So, uh, got some happy investors and I, I think there's good things ahead. Um, so yeah, but, but there'll be other, I'm sure there'll be more and that's good for the industry as a whole. Um, the fund also holds Bitcoin directly as well, um, as well as an allocating capital to other hedge funds. And then I also have a, a Bitcoin exclusive fund, which is just for um, family offices and high net worth individuals who want to own Bitcoin uh, but do it in a way that's more consistent with how they're used to making investments. Right. And there are some unique attributes of that fund that I won't bore you with. But the key thing is um, it's one of the only funds where if and when an investor chooses to leave the fund, they can actually get Bitcoin. Give us the wallet address. We'll send you your Bitcoin. Oh, that, was, nice. that was the key aspect to do it. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And then so you've talked to me offline a little bit about this new paradigm of asset allocation. Yeah. So um, you remember like uh, if you think of like traditional finance, there are like those, you go to an investment advisor and they'll give you like a pie chart of what, um, you know, the traditional portfolio that they suggest for you is, oh, you should be 50% stocks and 20% bonds. And mm -hmm. you should have, uh, you know, 10% in cash and short-term liquid assets and gold and the like. And you should have this percentage in alternative investments and foreign equities and things like mm -hmm. that. And then they'll kind of tweak that portfolio a little bit based on your risk profile. And so what I've been kind of talking about recently, I mean, I view my role as really like a digital asset manager. And so I'm speaking to uh, all different kinds of pools of capital, primarily family offices and high net worth individuals, as well as some institutions, and kind of explaining to them how to think about getting exposure to this space and how to allocate their capital. And so the new paradigm portfolio, the way I see it, is I've got Bitcoin, um, which I think is the emerging and new store of value. And that kind of has taken the place of all short-term investments, gold, which has failed miserably and is not working at all, mm -hmm. and fixed income and the entire bond piece. Right now, you've got $17 trillion of sovereign debt that's negative yielding. You've got, I think, over $100 trillion of sovereign debt that's you know yielding like 1% or less. Um, obviously, the shorter end of the curve there. Um, and you know, even like the longer end of the curve where you're getting 3% um, in real terms, you're locking in a loss, right? You're, yeah. The inflation rate is going up by more than 3%. You're locking in a 3% return. All you've done is guaranteed that you're going to lose money mm -hmm. and lose purchasing power in real terms over a long period of time, which is just insane to me. So mm -hmm. I don't think there's any reason to have capital in that. And I think all of those buckets should go into Bitcoin. So new paradigm, I think about a third of people's net worth, uh, and obviously it depends on you know how risk averse you are or whatever, but about a third of people's money should go into Bitcoin. 
Um, and you can even steal some of the big tech equity exposure for Bitcoin as well, because mm -hmm. as we shift to this new store of value, there's going to be a supply demand imbalance as more and more capital comes over from gold and other sources, and we're going to see outsized performance. So in the short term, I think it can actually steal a lot of the equity allocation as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, somewhere between 30% and all of your money, maybe. Um, and then <laughs> depending on how, depending on how you are from risk averse to sailor, I guess. Um, I'll stop at 100% of your assets. I won't go as far as more than 100% uh, being the prudent guy that I am. But, uh, and then I think there's also um, uh, a reason to have exposure to um, other technologies in the digital asset class. And I view them very separately. I think of Bitcoin as this emerging store of value um, that is going after this multi-hundred trillion dollar uh, opportunity. And I think of um, other areas of crypto and digital assets as uh, venture capital in a new asset class that is going to grow dramatically and, and be a big thing. And um, I don't think they're diametrically opposed in any way. I don't think they need to be enemies. I think it is unfortunate from a marketing point of view that the media lumps us all together in the term crypto. And mm. we've got true shit coins like the dog coins and the like uh, lumped in with other assets that potentially deliver real value and, and change the world. Yeah, it's well said. I, it's exactly how I describe it as it, you know, Bitcoin is in a class of its own. To your earlier point, it is the internet, basically. It's just another protocol, only in this case, we're moving economic value instead of information, but it's another permissionless protocol that's built right on top of the internet. I mean, it basically is the internet. Um, and everything else is liquid venture capital. You know, and that that world is interesting. I don't know if anything's market proven yet. And I'm also, I've been spending some brain cycles and having some conversations on how do we quantify decentralization? Like, I think that's a big unknown mm -hmm. still. Like, because everything has to start out centralized. Even Bitcoin was just an idea in Satoshi's mind yep. before it became what it is. So the question I'm ruminating on is like, what other market niches demand decentralization and can projects cross the chasm? And if they can, how do yep. we know? You know, where do you draw the line? So that's an interesting place to think about. I'm, I want to speak to the allocation piece a little bit. There's this old, I think it's a, it's in old Jewish texts where they, the advice was hold a third of your wealth in land, a third of your wealth in your business, and a third of your wealth in cash. And so yeah. I feel like the world will kind of move that direction as a result of Bitcoin. You know, we're so heavy weighted equities yeah. and stuff now because of fiat currency, right? The incentives related to that. And for me, so I'm trying to be ahead of the curve and kind of adopt that myself, but it just so happens cash is Bitcoin to me. Like I denominate myself in Bitcoin. I would, yeah, I was going to make that point. Even even yeah. Ray Dalio says, you know, fiat cash is trash, right? So so yeah. what what constitutes cash today? Um, and I think Bitcoin has to be the majority of that. It, certainly it is for me. Yeah. Um, and then how much of the others does Bitcoin usurp, right? Because it certainly is big tech and it is emerging and it's, and it's all those other things as well. So I think it, I think present day, it probably gets an outsized allocation relative yeah. to the whole pie. 
and maybe uh, 10, 15, 100 years from now, it starts to take on more of a traditional cash role yep. um, Agreed. in size. So I, I, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but I do know that if you don't have exposure to it, it's a problem. And what's what's really interesting is, you know, having kind of been a digital asset manager for a while, just hearing how these big pools of capital and these family offices who have tremendous resources, not just financial resources, but, uh, you know, contacts, education, mm. informational resources, and to hear how their view is evolving and to hear how they're looking for exposure uh, to Bitcoin and why they're looking for exposure to Bitcoin is really been a very interesting, interesting dialogue over mm. the years. <laughs> And it, sure. it's changed dramatically in the last six months. Yes. Yeah. The number go up or Bitcoin price action dramatically changes that conversation. As we were saying offline, you know, I I've think been... it's more the regulation. Oh, I the regulation. More, yeah. I think it's I think I think it's more the regulatory landscape. You know, you got enough a lot of this, uh I'll use I'll use the not so great term older money, right? But like mm -hmm. a lot of this generational wealth, older money, people who are in the stay rich game, not the get rich game. Mm -hmm. You know, they listen to the Jamie Diamonds of the world, the Ray Dalios of the world, the Charlie right. Mungers of the world, and for good reason, they respect the hell out of them, right? Mm -hmm. And all of those people that I just mentioned are truly impressive people in a traditional financial environment, and they should be respected. Mm -hmm. And so they hear them say these negative things. And it scares them away. And they hear Ray Dalio basically, in so many words, say, Bitcoin's too good, the government's going to outlaw it. Mm -hmm. And then they hear the government say what they're going to do. And they hear Jay Powell and Gary Ginsler in front of Congress say, hey, we're not regulating this away. We're not making it illegal. We want to protect investors. We want to do these things, but we're not eliminating it. Combine that with kind of the China thing, you know, it's a nice badge of honor, and you're probably in the right on the right side of things if you're embracing something, a technology that China's kicked out, right? Mm -hmm. So I was proud of the U.S.'s reaction to that. I think that actually helped uh, kind of you know form things the direction we're going on the U.S. side, and the family offices and folks that I'm talking to, they're now starting to a feel comfortable getting some exposure to Bitcoin, as well as feeling like. Oh shit! My money's melting away, and you know, I don't think you know. It's interesting talking to people with a lot of money um, because you know sometimes you think, well, they, you know, what do they care? They're going to be fine. They have, you know, five hundred million, a billion, you know, whatever it is. Like, what do they care? Um, but they really care, and maybe the mm -hmm. reason they have the money to begin with is because they care. Right. Or if they're just uh, the stewards of a family office of this generation, they certainly want to leave the family office in as good a position, if not better than they found it. Mm -hmm. And so they don't want the purchasing power of their wealth melting away for the next generations. Mm -hmm. So they, they really do care. And now they're really um, looking to embrace Bitcoin in, in big numbers and meaningful ways. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I notice a lot of my conversations pivoting on the price, but I imagine with your conversations focused on that demographic, the regulatory landscape, probably shapes it even more where price is significant. Sorry. I'll, I'll just add one thing. Price is significant at the actual time of investment. Mm -hmm. So like once they've made the decision and they wire me, uh, you know, some money, then they care about the price and the execution. But I think, and this is a beautiful 
thing for people who care about the price of Bitcoin going up is it's not the way that real money is thinking about it. What they're thinking about is like they think about gold. And it's yeah. that portfolio construct that I was talking about where it's an allocation. It's a percent of the portfolio. So they say, okay, put 5% in Bitcoin. They don't say put 5% in Bitcoin if it comes down to this price. Right. They want 5% in Bitcoin. So it's, an, it's a portfolio allocation based on the size of the allocation. X number of dollars go into Bitcoin. And do you see them rebalancing out a lot? Say like post bull run? I don't know. It'll, you know, I, I think that you got to reevaluate the landscape and it'll mm. depend on the macroeconomic factors. Mm. Um, my guess is that um, there's not a lot of reducing one's Bitcoin exposure for the foreseeable future. I think there's going to be a long period of time where people will only wish they had more and bought more. Um, so I don't think we're going to see too much selling. Mm -hmm. And maybe uh, with some of the new products that are coming on, we just won't see any selling at all. It'll be that asset uh, that you hold forever and borrow against and, and never sell. Makes you grateful that we learned our lesson early, right? About selling. <laughs> yeah, I'll be a pretty painful. Um, yeah. I am glad we learned our lesson early. <laughs> I, I, won't make, I won't make that mistake again. Let me ask you this. So you mentioned gold has clearly been a poor performer in this uh, post-COVID environment of excessive monetary expansion. I, in my view, I think Bitcoin and the, re let me put it this, I think the reason most people don't understand Bitcoin, clearly is because they don't understand money, hence the name of the show, but yep. because they don't understand money, they don't understand gold, right? It's just kind of been this crisis or this portfolio crisis insurance that no one really understands, but they put it there almost out of inertia, right? It, people have just yep. been doing it. I view Bitcoin as a disruptor to gold. So I think that's why it's so hard for people to get. What do you think about it? I mean, what do you, how do you view gold? Do you think Bitcoin is disruptive yep. to gold? And is if so, is that why people like even Ray Dalio don't get it? A guy who's clearly such a proponent yeah. for gold can't see, uh, I guess, beneath it to understand Bitcoin. I think I think you're exactly right. It's it's and this is why I've been using this asset allocation model and kind of these pie charts. Um, because that's what people do. They sit down in front of a, a pie chart and they think about asset allocation, they think about uh, certain wealthy people, right? And they, and they think about where where are their assets in the world and they think, "Oh, well, I need some gold." They don't even know why they need gold, mm -hmm. but gold's been a mainstay on that pie chart you know, up to 10% for a long time, depending on how, you know, risk averse someone is, right? Um, and they just do that. And I think Bitcoin is going to take the place of that completely. I think gold has failed absolutely miserably. You know, for context, if you go back hundreds of years, there was a time when substantially all the wealth of the world was held in gold, right? Mm -hmm. Now it holds less than 2% of the world's wealth. So I think Bitcoin is absolutely going to crush it. I think that much like every digital successor to an analog predecessor. It doesn't just usurp the exact value of its mm -hmm. predecessor. So I don't think Bitcoin is going to go to the 10, 11 trillion that gold is at. I think it's going to go way, way past it. And there are tons of examples. I mean, you know, one of the best being like rotary phones and mobile phones kind of thing, yeah. right? And, and that's a perfect corollary because there's just so much more utility to digital gold mm -hmm. and Bitcoin than there is the yellow metal. So I think we're going to see a similar thing. And I think the real beauty of that is I think that when Bitcoin gets to 
five trillion, you know, two hundred and fifty thousand of Bitcoin, roughly half of gold. I really do think at that point, some I, I don't know what terminology is the right terminology to use, but it becomes really hard to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, too big to fail, unstoppable, mm-hmm. eat everything, whatever version people like. Mm-hmm. But at that point, there's enough of the world's wealth in it that you've got such strong constituencies in every area. It's permeated everything, pension funds, endowment funds, indirect holders of stocks, mm-hmm. um, you know, indirect holders of everything, members of Congress, potentially president, sitting presidents. I mean, who knows, right? So I think it'll be such a part of everyone's wealth that it will be very well protected. And then it really will be some version of unstoppable. That said, as optimistic as I am, I don't think we're there yet. Mm. I like the direction. I like the trend. (laughs) But I still think we're in the, uh, this is an experiment that's going very well stage. Yeah. That's a great point. I actually really agree with that because I've fought around the $5 trillion market cap. That's when it becomes a, it's cemented as a macro asset, right? Every capital pool on the planet has to evaluate their strategy and relationship to it at that point. Right Um, now we're half the size of a big tech company. Yeah. Right. Um, But we, I mean, very well could be there in the next few months, even if this bull run continues. So uh, I would, I would think next two years, but yeah, year and a half to two years, I would think, but um, yeah. And then the other thing that uh, gives me some agita is I wish, (laughs) I wish that this was the tact that those that wanted to see Bitcoin succeed took. Right. Mm. I mean, in some ways, it's like Genghis Khan-esque, right? Like, this is like a Trojan horse. If we just play the game to get to 250,000, we don't need to talk about hyper-Bitcoinization, taking over Mm. the world, toppling all these things. Mm. Let's just, we can get to where we need to go just by being a digital gold, just Mm. by rivaling gold, which is a narrative that's not threatening to anyone or anything. It gets us property rights. It gets us all these great things. And we can get to where we need to go just by getting to 250. And then people can use whatever flowery language and, you know, uh, Mm. radical stuff they want to say. But I think we, not that Bitcoin should be scared and I'm not, you know, operating from a position of fear, but it's nice to bring people under the tent instead of scaring them. Yeah, that's a great point. And there's a lot of, conversation around that you know some people it's a, it's an ongoing conversation especially when it comes to like the geopolitical game theory related to bitcoin people have criticized me for talking about it too much and yeah. i'm like well i think the conversations need to be had either in the sunlight or behind closed doors but i, I don't know i'm not completely yeah. sure of the right answer um me neither i mean decentralization doesn't have to mean disorganization yeah right right but I, so back to the, if it gets a $5 trillion market cap, it does become a, you know, like you said, I'm not sure which term, a runaway feedback loop, something like that. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it seems to me like this lesson that there's this old quote, and I don't know who said it, but it's something to the effect that the greatest shortcoming of human beings is our inability to understand the exponential function. And so things that, 
spread exponentially. You know, what is it? You fold a piece of paper in half 50 times and it reaches the sun kind of thing. We, yeah. We're not predisposed to understanding virality, you know, and the digital age has all these viral phenomenon of which Bitcoin is like right. the latest and greatest. Um, so it seems like maybe that's contributing to the blind spot too. It's like even guys, I always look at Dalio because yeah. I'm like, Dalio gets money. He gets gold. He gets macro. I think he gets Bitcoin now too. He owns it. So and he's coming around yeah. on Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think you're right. It, it's that the rate of change, especially with in our technologically forward society is just ever faster. Mm-hmm. You know, most people don't understand the power of compound interest. If anyone ever looked at a compound interest table, their mind would be blown, mm-hmm. right? At a at a moderate interest rate of just how quick things accumulate. Mm-hmm. You can even look at it in negative context and in a, in a non-financial context at just how rapidly things, I won't say spun out of control, but spun in a particular direction during COVID and mm-hmm. lockdowns and like bringing the economy and the world to a screeching halt. Yeah. Um, so yeah, people people greatly underestimate um, the exponential rate of change. Yeah, and with Bitcoin, it's an exponential decay function of its new supply flow. We we cannot understand how scarce this asset is. It's, ph- it's and it's phenomenal. doubling I mean, every four yeah. years. Yeah, I mean there are fifty two millionaires, fifty two million millionaires on the planet. There's not even enough for every millionaire to own a half a Bitcoin. Right. And then you take out the lost Bitcoin and then you take out the large hodlers of Bitcoin and you start to realize, you know, that there's a good chance that half a Bitcoin is going to, you know, be the equivalent to real wealth someday. It's going to make someone a wealthy person. Yeah. It's incredible. Okay. um, Oh, we're at an hour 30. Do you want to do a break here? Good, good, good to keep are. going. All right, cool. Yeah. yeah. So you got the fund of funds, and that's I that's what you've been doing since. I'm sorry, when did you launch that? Uh February 2018. Okay, gotcha. And so that's going well. You've gone yep. from uh way down at one point to way up. <laughs> so everybody's happy. Yeah. Uh correct. Maybe here is a good segue into one of the stories you're most infamous for, which is the orange <laughs> pilling of the Giga Chad himself. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so Michael and I have been uh, have been friends for more than 20 years. Um, we hang out quite a bit, um, and we talk about all kinds of stuff. Um, one of the big topics that that we talk about are investments and um, technology. Uh, Michael has a unique gift kind of tying back to some of the stuff we spoke about before about identifying network, technological network effects. I mean, if you look at the book, The Mobile Wave that he wrote, where he kind of um, predicted exactly how mobile phones and apps would would change, dematerialize things and change our lives, he was spot on on that. And some people see these things just a little bit earlier than others. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that pertains directly to Bitcoin. Um, but So, you know, initially when I kind of got into the space, um, Michael, uh, you know, was was fairly strong in his language that he didn't think I was making a good career choice. And, um, you know, so I I would still bring it up every once in a while. But 
he still didn't bite and he's too polite to tell me I'm a fucking idiot. So we just kind of would change the subject. And then, um, you know, it was during, uh, it was during these COVID lockdowns, we were spending, uh, obviously there wasn't much to do. We were spending a lot of time at his place because the surroundings are quite comfortable and, uh, we're sitting by the pool and we're talking about, you know, we saw the economy coming to a screeching halt, right? We saw what was happening. Um, maybe a little before Mm -hmm. most people, uh, certainly Michael saw it before most people. And we realized that the global economy was to a large degree going to get shut down. And so we kind of panicked and sold a lot of our investments in particular tech investments, Mm -hmm. thinking that, well, shit, this can't be good. We didn't, uh, have an appreciation or, or factor in the insane money printing that took place and just how that would lead to acid acid inflation that would dramatically outpace and overshadow um you know the monetary inflation for time being in stocks mm-hmm. right so like you know disney was one that like drove me crazy it was they were in the worst business possible. Mm-hmm. They laid off a huge chunk of their employees. Their cruise ships shut down, movie theaters shut down, theme parks shut down. Yeah, they had Disney Plus over the top, but even that's still not expected to be profitable to 2025. And the stock is up 100% from where it was pre-COVID. So is Disney worth 2x what it was, or is maybe the dollar worth less? Right. right. And so we sold we sold those things, and we're kind of sitting around scratching our heads, and that scratching our heads turned to a little bit of anger um, at the money printing that was happening. And Michael remembers me saying, you know, anytime there's big change like this, there's opportunity. We just have to kind of, you know, find what that area of opportunity is. Like change is good. We need, we need to find the opportunity here. Mm -hmm. And then I guess I started talking about Bitcoin as I often do. And this time, instead of, ignoring it or uh, changing the subject. He looked at me very seriously and he said, tell me more about this. And that started um, the better part of a week, certainly a few days worth of uh, as deep a discussion on Bitcoin as I was capable of. And as the world now knows, uh, no one person is capable of providing enough information for Michael on anything. So once he had absorbed uh, everything that I had, he asked me, you know, where else uh, can I learn more? And I, I pointed him to, you know, a bunch of resources, whatever I could. And he continued to, you know, do his research and go down the rabbit hole. And uh, then I helped him uh, get some access to purchasing Bitcoin. Um, and then one day I'm pulling uh, into a restaurant here uh, to meet some friends for dinner. And the phone rings and it's him and he doesn't usually call, usually text, we usually text or something. So it was a little unusual. And so I answered the phone and I'm like, what's up? And he says, well, I bought some Bitcoin. And I said, oh, congratulations. And he said, yeah, 10,000. And at the time, Bitcoin was about $10,000 per Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, really, you're calling me to tell me that you bought one Bitcoin? So I was like, I was like, you bought one Bitcoin, dude? And he goes, there's a pause. And he goes, no, Eric, I bought 10,000 Bitcoin. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, that's a hundred million dollars, right? So uh, I instantly went from uh, trying to orange pill my buddy and getting him into Bitcoin to thinking, oh shit, he just 
put a lot of money into this. And if there's one thing that I've learned in being in Bitcoin, you know, for this time is that it's volatile and we all have good days and we all have bad days, so to speak. And all I could think is, I hope that my buddy has a good experience because that's an awful lot of money. Um, so wow. anyway, that was kind of, uh, that's kind of how it, how it all started. Wow. What, that's such a, an amazing, so I'm sure you were shocked in that moment too. 10,000, it's just a massive, it's not exactly yeah, a dip, dipping toe thinking, in the water. Yeah. I went from thinking, uh, I got to get this guy involved in this to what have I done? You know, <laughs> and you just start thinking like pragmatically, like you don't want it to impact your, you know, your friendship with somebody like yeah. been buddies a long time. And so, uh, I'm, I'm glad that it's worked out well. And now I think, uh, he's purchased North of $3 billion, um, you know, in total. So what I didn't know at the time, uh, was that, uh, he was in conversations with his board to try to buy it. And then, you know, this was a personal purchase at hundred million. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was certainly a, a fun and interesting time. And, uh, you know, I remember, I remember being with him when Bitcoin hit 12,000 after his purchase and kind of like, you know, we're not obsessed with the price, either one of us, but that was kind of like, uh, ah, you know, mm -hmm. like I felt like a weight went off me and I think we high-fived or something, but, uh, it was, <laughs> it was, <laughs> I felt, I felt relief, you know, I was like, okay. And so now I'm like, you know, just for the record, this has all worked out well. Like, like, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, so and, far uh, so good. I mean, his timing was great. So that's definitely helpful. Uh, yeah. He's got a gift for, for spotting these things, but I think even equally importantly is like the ethos and the passion, um, you know, and, and I think everybody in life, you got to stand for something. Mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah. and it kind of ties into the political conversation we had. And um, this was something that, you know, we both believe in. I mean, you can hear it in the passion and all the time you've spent with him and, mm -hmm. and other chats he's given. I mean, he is, he is all in, uh, not just from a financial point of view, but from a passion, emotional, and like, you know, genuinely believes uh, in, in Bitcoin, in, in every aspect of it, in, in helping the world. So, I think he's um, thrilled that he's found another thing in life. Not that he was lacking something between his company and education, mm -hmm. but he's found something in life that uh, that he's happy to put his time and effort and money into. Yeah, I think you know that's what really makes him stand apart. Frankly, it's clearly his financial move into Bitcoin is massive, right? But it's massive. it's that in addition to all of the explanatory framework where he's convert. I mean, again, yeah. I read his book mobile wave in preparation for our series together. I mean, this guy gets it. He gets tech. Yep. He gets network effects. He gets history. He gets these implications. <laughs> it's, and it's unbelievable, but he's still like, you know, hats off to you for persevering on the orange pilling because I would be questioning myself. Like if a guy like that was telling me, you know, Bitcoin's yeah. bogus, dude, you know, and you're like, well, this guy fucking yeah. gets it. What am I not seeing? Um, yeah, we've, we've had a number of other related conversations. I mean, I remember, I think it was probably like 2013, 2014 timeframe. Um, we were on vacation somewhere and um, he started telling me how the die is cast and Apple has won. And at the time, Apple had about 20% of the mobile phone market and Android had like, you know, roughly 80. And we had this like 
really interesting long conversation where he explained to me that, you know, the iOS platform might only have 20% of the users, but it's got 80% of the world's money mm. and that iOS was going to win and Apple was going to crush it. And the analogy he used at the time, because, you know, his great analogies was, mm. you know, if you were, if you own banks, would you rather have 20% of the banks and 80% of the world's money or 80% of the banks and 20% of the world's money? Mm. And so, Hey, I made big investments in Apple based on that conversation. But yes, he gets it. He gets it earlier than most. He's got a gift for seeing these things, and then he just has like unbelievable guts and fortitude to to go all in. He had he had a nice lifestyle before this. Mm -hmm. He did not need to go all in on Bitcoin, um, but he did. Yeah. And uh, you know, he believe he believes in it like so passionately and so strongly. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, we were talking about. Genghis Khan at the beginning of this to have leaders that lead from the front, you know, like he actually put his money where his mouth is. He put his skin in the game and I would argue he is even exhibiting soul in the game, right? He is taking no certain types of risk to be so publicly outspoken about it. Um, but to represent it you know, and to represent Bitcoin philosophically, even in that he's explaining the why as much as he's explaining yeah. the what. Um, the other great thing about, him kind of uh, taking the role that he's taken with this uh, from my point of view is the Michael that you've talked to for hours and, and recorded and the other podcasts um, that's, that's Michael every day. So, mm -hmm. you know, when tonight after we're done, when I go over to his place for dinner, like this is what conversation is and you get exactly that on whatever the topic du jour is and you get it, um, based on historical context, supported by facts with off the cuff analogies and comparisons that are factually accurate, um, all in a stream of consciousness. And it's just, it's just an unbelievable, you know, the best thing about being friends with Michael is access to his brain and, um, you know, and just hearing his thoughts because it's extraordinary. And so what I love about the role that he's taking with Bitcoin is now, with the millions and millions of views that you've generated and everybody else, now that gets shared with the world. And, and, and I think that's a great thing. I could not agree more. Um, he's just been, you know, a tremendous asset, frankly, to the space. And I, yeah. it came, it caught me so off guard, frankly, because I think it was maybe August, 2020. Is that when he bought originally or when the headline yeah. came out, maybe not, not him personally, but um, MicroStrategy. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And, you know, at the time, August, it's September, like September, Bitcoin had got annihilated in March, like every risk on asset. And then it had slowly started to come back. And we were just kind of, you know, Bitcoin world was just chugging along, writing and talking about it. He wanted to buy, he wanted to buy it then. The conversations we had took place a little earlier. He was really interested in buying some during that dip, but we, he just, it onboarding takes a long time. Yeah, I bet. Especially at that volume. Um, yeah, <laughs> and it, it, I don't know, it just caught me off guard. Whereas, like, you know, we've been kind of writing and talking about this for a long time, and to see it make waves at that level that quickly, um, it, it was just, just a very powerful reminder how interconnected the whole world is and how fast things can move, yeah. you know. So, I think it also highlights the difference an individual can make. And mm -hmm. there are, there are plenty of uh, very influential, very well-respected individuals right now 
that I know of that own a lot of Bitcoin, mm -hmm. like billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. And if those people would come forward and step into the limelight for better or worse, the way Michael had the courage to, the ball would get moved forward because yeah. these are people that everybody respects. And um, so props to Elon. I give Elon some credit, which I'm sure people hate me for, but props to him for doing it publicly and saying publicly that it's really the only material thing he owns other than stock in his companies. And I just think we need more of these people who are big hodlers of Bitcoin to have the courage to say it publicly. Yeah. Good thing for us. Yeah, absolutely. Could not agree more. Um, and frankly, it's increasingly in your self-interest to do so, right? You know, again, there may be, there's risk associated with the visibility, but there's also a, a yep. benefit. Um, and it does seem to be a one direction rabbit hole. I don't know anyone that goes into this thing and comes out like people just absolutely fall deeper and deeper into it. Uh, and your, and your conviction grows in tandem. So, um, it, it goes back to what we said at the beginning, right. About, um, about it just kind of being so closely tied and so consistent with the values upon which this country were founded. Mm -hmm. And if you get down to an individual human level, who doesn't like the values upon which this were founded? How right. do you not value freedom? How do you not value sovereignty? And the more you research Bitcoin and the further you go down the rabbit hole, the more you identify those aspects. And when you peel away some political bullshit that may be, you know, uh, you know, coloring your view and you get down to the basics and, and the purity of it, it's very hard not to, not to be moved. Mm -hmm. Agreed completely. And, you know, again, this is, it's a modern innovation, but you'll never comprehend the profundity of it until you look backward and you look across history, like how did we get to America? This, this, and even before America, yeah. we had this in, in the Magna Carta, this, uh, the natural law tenets of life, liberty, and property, right? We've been working towards something like Bitcoin for, you know, almost all of human civilization, right? Even Genghis Khan was a contributor to this indirectly. Absolutely. And absolutely. You know, and I love that Michael does this too. He he focuses on the property right aspects because that is the bedrock of civilization. And that's a good framing for Bitcoin, is that it is the most expensive form of property to violate in human history, right? It doesn't require Not, physical enforcement. Yeah. It's very, it's impossible to inflate, very hard to steal. Yeah. So it's very important for civilization, for future civilization. Not only that, um, I think property rights are so well established in our society mm -hmm. and come with so many benefits that the single best thing that Bitcoin could be categorized as for all of us who love Bitcoin is property. Mm -hmm. And to foster narratives pushing for Bitcoin to be categorized as something else, a currency, a this, a that, in my humble opinion, is extremely counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Property is where you want to be. A United States senator can, on the Senate floor, advocate for property. Mm -hmm. They can't advocate for a security or something else, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So it's pro property is is key. Yeah, is, is property is a key way forward for us. Yeah, well said. I could not agree more. Um, Eric, man, thank you for orange yeah, pilling our mightiest hero. <laughs> <laughs>
we all do what we can for Bitcoin, right? Yeah, that's yeah. We all have a job to do, which is another amazing thing about Bitcoin is that we're all part of this decentralized organization. Like it is one big business, you know, we're all, we all have our own, I guess, equity stake in it through holding Bitcoin, but we're also all pulling in the same direction, which makes it just so powerful. I agree. It's, it's an unstoppable all-star team of people where, you know, every time I turn on television and there's another person on TV promoting Bitcoin, it's not Michael from another corner of the world. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. We, we've got people in every corner of the planet 24 seven and nobody's getting paid to do it. And nobody's getting their marching orders from any particular place. It's just a bunch of people with shared basic human beliefs coming together to try to make the world a better place and yeah. promote this thing. The beauty of life, liberty, and property in action, right? <laughs> exactly. Where can my audience find you if they want to learn more about you or your business? Uh, Twitter is probably the best way. It is uh, Eric underscore B-I-G fund. Uh, Eric underscore big fund, Bitcoin investment group fund. Awesome. Easy name to remember. Thanks for doing this. And I guess I'll be seeing you pretty soon in Miami. My pleasure. See you soon in Miami. Thanks again. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Eric.